Tonight is a big topic. And there's so many different ways to move into it. I suppose I'll just start by saying that um, human beings are storytelling beings. We are <coughs> beings that connect very well with each other. That's what gave us our great survival advantage. The fact that we can develop secure connections, but also what we can do is we can, in language, narrate the stories of our lives, which creates a sense of a self and identity. And the ability to construct an ongoing, coherent story of life is very much at the heart of what allows us to bond with each other, to make sense of our lives, to plot out a purpose for our existence, and to make sense of why we're here. We are beings that know that we live in the shadow of death, that we're going to die, and so we also are burdened with the idea of how we establish a purpose for our existence beyond merely survival of the species. And we do that, we create that purpose in language, in the stories we tell, especially the stories we construct of our lives. Now, our lives are, of course, as there are 365 days a year with 24 hours in each of them, there are far more events in our lives than we can possibly use in the narratives of our lives that we tell. So we pick and we choose. We do a lot of editing. And in fact, while it's tempting to want to believe that that editing is done consciously, in fact, the editing that constructs your identity, the story you tell about yourself, that gives you the sense of continual identity as you go through changes in life, a lot of that is actually those decisions are being made behind the scenes. In fact, uh, there's one, little, one region of the brain called the hippocampus, and it's worthwhile knowing that it plays a major role in your life. And if it stops working, you get Alzheimer's disease because you can't form memories. You want to take care of your hippocampus. <coughs> the biggest enemy to your hippocampus, by the way, is stress. Needlessly stressing yourself out releases cortisol, damages the hippocampus, and plays a major role in memory loss. There are other, of course, genetic factors as well. But the hippocampus in normal functioning is watching and observing, and when it notes that an important emotionally resonant event has happened, either something that makes you feel like you've got a great advantage or you've done something that makes you feel really good about yourself, or a really threatening event has happened, then the hippocampus jumps to life and starts recording 
it's always recording. It's sort of like one of those Time Warner boxes, you know, that's always recording shit. But you can tell it, especially, you know, it will start recording in greater detail when an emotionally resonant event happens. And it constructs narratives. It, se it sequences the things that happen. And it generally constructs your memories out of three things. The first is the, what the Buddha called sana, the perceptions, the sensory sights, sounds that are going on around you. <coughs> the second is roughly what the Buddha called Vedana, your emotional activations, the feelings, the reactions that you have to life. And the third is, are the thoughts and the ideas and the, the intentions and whatever stories you're telling during the event. And that helps you sequence for the future. So, if I ask you today, today what did you have for lunch, you might be able to narrate it. But by tomorrow, you probably won't. And certainly by next week, that memory will be long gone. Because it wasn't emotionally resonant. But the important events, the hippocampus, will store for long-term memory in the left hemisphere. So that you can use these events to tell the story of your life. The time I graduated, the time me and my friends went on a trip through Europe, the time this and that happened. You'll also remember disappointing events as well. But what happens if an event is really, really, really threatening or overwhelming to the hippocampus, by which I mean there are too many sensations going on. The emotions are too activated. The mind is flurried with thoughts and the sensations, perhaps, are too overwhelming. Well, in those situations, different results can happen. I'm going to take them one by one. Suppose a phone call comes, the dreaded phone call comes in the middle of the night, and you find out that somebody that you're very close to has been in a horrific car accident. Or you lose somebody that you care about deeply. Now, in that situation, what very often will happen is because the direct threat has not happened to you, you will go into a state of emotional shutdown, a numbing state, where you will block the awareness of the emotional activations that are happening, because it would be too much to keep track of the sensations that you're seeing and hearing, and the ideas that are being presented to you, that somebody you care about has been injured or has been killed. So you will simply block the emotions and just function in a sort of trance-like state. And people who go through that very often, for instance, people who suddenly get really dire cancer diagnosis, they move from stage one to stage four or something, uh, a really dreadful diagnosis comes out of the blue, 
they will walk around in a trance for a while in the sense that they have no ability to emotionally feel the or digest in any somatic way what's happened. They'll show up for work. They'll go through the motions. But they'll be in a kind of almost numb state, almost like a trance-like state. I've worked with a lot of people who've been in this, so I, I can visualize it. You might not be that familiar with people who've heard shocks, but maybe you can understand what I'm referring to. And in such cases, people, it's really crucial that once it's available, people who've been through or heard shocking news get some form of therapy because until they do, they can be in a state of emotional deactivation that will close them off to new relationships and will basically keep them in a sort of state where they are emotionally uh, minimizing every experience in life. They will not be able to open up deeply to other opportunities because essentially the right hemisphere of the brain, which keeps track of your feeling of security in the world, is basically all of its internal maps, which is what your right hemisphere stores, internal maps of the world and how secure you feel in it will have been disrupted. And it won't allow you to go back into a normal, emotional, full spectrum. So when people have been through shocks and they find a therapeutic alliance with somebody who's safe, they can very slowly begin to re-articulate the emotions that they numbed during the trauma, the bad news. Are some of you following me? I hope. <laughs> I should warn you that the first part of tonight's talk is not particularly happy stuff, but I <laughs> rack my brains to try to figure out a jovial approach to talking about trauma, and uh, it so far eluded me. So we'll. Uh, so that's the goal: to basically be able to uh, fully reclaim the emotions, because in the story of our lives. Perhaps the most important component is being able to articulate the emotions that happen during each phase, to be able to hold them and express them. If we, as creatures, if we lose a huge emotional chunk of our lives, we cannot develop and sustain meaningful relationships with other people during those times. Because it is the right hemisphere and our emotional activations which actually allow us to connect meaningfully with others. It's not your language centers. It's not your reasoning. It's the fact that you have emotions that allow you to securely connect. So while you're in a state of emotional deactivation, you will not be able to open up and feel secure very easily. Now, let's take another story. Let's put that one aside, and <coughs> let's talk about the case where somebody is, two people are standing, uh, and 9-11 happens, and they are within close proximity of... Um, of uh, the events. They, literally, their lives are in danger. Well, there are 
likely events that will happen. When you're in a situation where you feel you can run and get away from a threat, you'll go into an emotional activation called fear. The point of fear is to get you to leave, to get the fuck out, to run away. If you are in a threatening situation you feel anger, it's because your brain has decided that you can fight your way out. But if you are in a situation where you cannot run, possibly, and you cannot fight, you will go into the third, which is called freeze. When people go into a freeze state, they generally dissociate. Dissociate means to play dead, to act dead, if you were attacked by a predator, for instance a tiger or a bear, your best bet would be to literally convince the bear that you were dead. And you wouldn't do this consciously, you would literally dissociate, go out of body, out of the sensations that were happening. You would not remember the attack. People who are attacked by bears and survive cannot remember any of it. When people are very often in horrific car accidents, they go into dissociative amnesia because we are not taking in the sensations, the perceptions of what's going on around us. So in that state, we are not taking in, and so there will be a blank state or space in the left hemisphere. Part of our story will be missing. There is a part of the brain, though, that that is recording. While the hippocampus is overwhelmed and is shut down, there's a little part of you called the amygdala, your fear mechanism, that continues to record, and it will take in a couple of sensations, images, and these will create what are called flashbulb memories. You will not be able to construct them into a narrative. You will not be able to successfully integrate them at first into the left hemisphere of your brain because they will be so overwhelming and activate so much emotions that the hippocampus will not be able to present a nice story of them. And so what happens in the future is whenever you encounter something that reminds you of the trauma, the flashbulb memories will be triggered. And those few events that the amygdala recorded will start flashing. And you will go into what's called a reliving of the trauma. Still following me? Okay. So... The hippocampus, which normally creates your memory, shuts down, but there's the amygdala that's working, and it's recording just a few random bits of, of cues. And some of the cues it will recall are utterly neutral and have nothing to do with the threat. That's one of the crazy things about the amygdala. It's not very smart. So if you're in a car accident... And I always use the example of Steely Dan because I sort of hate them. (laughs) Some people like them, but I I really can't abide by them. (laughs) Just they're too smart. Uh, So you're listening to Steely Dan, and the next time you hear Steely Dan, you you might... experience a reactivation because it will trigger the flooding of the images because it's been recalled by the amygdala as well. Not just the car crash, but Steely Dan. 
Now, suppose you really like Steely Dan. It's hard for me to imagine, but I'll run with it. You might be tempted to avoid Steely Dan for the rest of your life. Because, every, because when you hear Steely Dan, you will be activated. Now, if you fall into that avoidance pattern, that's not a good idea. Because avoidance doesn't not only make life easier, it tends to pull other things into its black hole. First you stop avoiding Steely Dan, then you'll start avoiding different bands and different music, then you'll start avoiding listening to, and you'll start avoiding being on the street or on the road where the accident happened. You'll avoid getting into cars, and eventually people, from very small interactions, if they go into avoidance strategies, wind up suffering from something called agoraphobia, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It generally starts with a very small avoidance strategy. But avoidance is associative, and it will pull more and more and more things into its gravity. So if you've been in a scary event in your life, as they say, it is actually better if you can get back on the bike after you've fallen off of it, because if you avoid it, you will start an avoidance strategy. So this is where exposure therapy comes in. I'm not going to go into it right now, but the goal is to very slowly start to listen with people you feel safe to listen to Steely Dan again. <laughs> or suppose uh, one night while you're walking in the hallway of your house, you get attacked by somebody's deranged. You might want to avoid walking in the hallway, but there won't be any way. So the best way to do it is incrementally, slowly, with help, relaxing the breath, moving back and re-exposing yourself to the, to the cue so that you can deactivate that cue as something that triggers the reaction. The cool thing about the brain is, um, as Joseph Ledoux has found, is that each time you recall a memory, you don't just, it doesn't stay in some place where you're just copying it and thinking it, but it's unchanged. Each time you remember something, you change it and you rewrite it again. So every time you rethink of a memory, you're re-encoding it. So if you, each time you think of a memory, you get activated, frightened, and in a panic, you'll re-ingrain that that's a traumatic memory. But if you can recall that memory in a safe environment, you will actually begin to de-encode it as a trigger. And that's how exposure therapy and how cognitive behavioral therapy and how talk therapy works. Simply, we begin to pick the triggers of our lives, the parts, the, the incomplete narratives that we stumble over, the horrific events that we can't talk about easily because we're scared, because they re-trigger us, they cause activations. We do it in a safe environment, and each time we do it, we rewrite it as increasingly something that we can do with greater safety and with less activation. Now, 
people who've been through those kind of great traumas will have two kinds of general activations when they're re-traumatized. One group will dissociate. They'll depersonalize, go out of... They'll, they'll uh, start uh, going out of body. They will have deep perceptions where they'll start distorting what they see. Some people, though, will go into what's called hyperarousal, hypervigilance. They'll become, they'll suffer from insomnia, racing thoughts. They'll expect an attack to happen anywhere. So there's two continue, there's basically two responses to trauma that is life-threatening. You'll either block it out and go into a dissociative trance, and very often uh, the closer you feel to a situation that's similar to the original trauma, you'll go into that. But if you're in a situation where you're slightly safer, you'll probably go into hypervigilance. I'll give you an example. If somebody's been raped and they then go into a situation where somebody looks at them or in any visual cue is created that reminds them of the rape, they will probably become hypervigilant. But if they're actually having sex with someone later on, the closeness of the contact, the similarity, even though the rape is violent and the sex might not be, the similarity of sensations might trigger a dissociative response. So the closer you are to reenacting or reliving or the setting is re reminiscent of an original trauma, the more likely you are to dissociate. If it's different, you will probably just become activated. Now finally, some people are more vulnerable to PTSD than others. Let's take those two people beneath the towers of 9-11. One of them, even though they're standing side by side, might wind up with post-traumatic stress disorder and the other one might not. And the sole difference would be simply the upbringing the attachment that each of those two people have. If somebody grows up in an environment where they are securely connected to their parents, their caretakers, and they develop a right hemisphere that can override fear mechanisms, they can withstand a great deal of trauma, traumatic experiences, without blacking out, without dissociating, without their hippocampus shutting down and the amygdala taking over. They are capable of staying present and they will also be able to override the future activations of the amygdala which will re-traumatize and give them the flashback memories and the reliving of the experience. But if you grew up in an environment where you didn't feel particularly securely connected to your caretakers, your right hemisphere will be set at a default setting to not override fear impulses and you will thus be far more vulnerable to developing PTSD in the future. Infants who grow up in situations where they are, are abused by a caretaker or the caretaker is uh, completely unavailable often wind up with huge chunks of their early life missing. 
because they are constantly in amygdala activation with the hippocampus shut down. They are constantly incapable of recording because they are so traumatized by the lack of secure connection. These people, because they are so uh, removed of the core chapters of their lives, find it very difficult to make sense of future events and narratives because they have no... It's like the first five chapters of the novel of their life is missing. It's very difficult to make sense of the character then. I've worked with people who cannot remember the first ten years of their life. No memory. The traumas, the lack of secure connection is so great. So... depending upon the caretaking styles can determine a great deal of our future ability to withstand. One of my favorite psychologists, D.W. Winnicott, I'm going to close the first section of, of this talk and just move into the solutions. Uh, D.W. Winnicott said something that I think is really, really profound. He said that most people who have been traumatized live in fear of a catastrophe happening in the future that has in fact already happened to them in the past. What this means is because traumas so interfere with the ability to construct a coherent narrative of core moments of our lives that we live in the anticipation of something horrible happening in the future because we can't remember or piece together what has already happened in the past. And he noted that traumatized or people with uh, constant dissociative tendencies, the things they tend to fear the most, rejection, abandonment, uh, victimization by violence, has already invariably happened to them already. It's just that they can't remember it. And the ability to remove the fear of it happening in the future requires reconstructing some narrative of what happened to them in the past. When we get our past back, we do not project it into the future. Kind of heavy stuff. But it's important to understand. Most of the things we fear the most in our life, the things we fear, are actually the most frightening things we've lived through already. And we just have not fully been able to digest and parse it into a narrative that can tell us, yes, I've survived. I can be through abandonment. I can move through being rejected, cast out, unloved, uh, hurt. I can actively incorporate that into my life. When we are able to do that, when we can re-narrate our lives, we then can live free from the shadow that we're projecting into the future. So... There are a bunch of different techniques, and certainly in the last 10 years, the, um, the 
tools, modality, treatment techniques for trauma have just blossomed. So it's a good time to be traumatized. <laughs> uh, of course, there's uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which works by re-exposure. So if you've been through a scary, uh, overwhelming experience and you've developed avoidance, avoidance of cars, getting on a bike, traveling, uh, speaking in front of people, anything that can be associated with a traumatic rejection, then cognitive behavioral therapy will help you in a very gradual way re-expose yourself to that which is a cue so that you can walk through it. And uh, there's also EMDR, which basically is uh, a very interesting idea. The idea of EMDR is that while the trauma has been encoded in the right hemisphere of the brain to a certain degree, the traumatic images, the left hemisphere has not, been, has not had it integrated. And so the idea of EMDR is to stimulate left and right hemisphere while the, uh, the images that create reliving or re-traumatization are held in the mind. So what uh, an EMDR therapist will do is predictably ask somebody who's been through um, a traumatic event to hold an image in their mind that, they, that is not too overwhelming but is redolent of the event. And then they'll start moving their hands from left to right very close and the patient, the client, will move their eyes from left to right and the idea is to stimulate left and right hemisphere. And then the therapist will stop at one point and at that point the client locks in and then essentially free associates whatever images, sensations arise. And the idea is that somewhere packed in the right hemisphere, some of those blocked uh, recordings, memories, sensations that are not accessible to the left hemisphere will become available. And the left hemisphere, as it narrates it to the, the therapist, will reintegrate what has been lost to the unconscious into the conscious. There's no easy way of saying this shit, folks, so I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> Again, the idea is that it's in the unconscious realm of the right hemisphere, and that by stimulating them and then allowing you to asso free associate, you can begin to reclaim the traumatic memories that have been only arising as flashbulb memories. You'll be able to re-narrate them successfully. Some people do this with tapping, like this. There's other techniques, and the idea again is to re-stimulate or integrate left and right so that you'll be able to access uh, and basically re-narrate your life. Interestingly enough, the U.S. Army, which tends to, well, it's not really surprising, the U.S. Army uh, has, or military has, the funds the largest research into treating post-traumatic stress disorder. Guess the fuck why. <laughs> because they are traumatizing people in the millions. And so developing a way that will allow people to uh, successfully uh, 
be able to live with the traumatic experience is extremely important. And so they funded studies, and it turns out that Buddhist mindfulness techniques have actually twice the success rate in reducing avoidance and recurrence and re-triggering than EMDR and cognitive behavioral therapy and talk therapy. Now, why is this? Well, even EMDR, which is trying to do to re-expose people, is still risking re-traumatization. Until you get it right, every time you hold and re-expose yourself to the traumatic, the chances are you're going to refile it again and again and again as something that's overwhelming, and you'll just continue to uh, instill it as that part of your story which you cannot have any access to. But suppose instead you followed the Buddhist technique of first developing ease through using the breath or a concentration tool which allowed you to begin to override the small fear impulses arriving from your amygdala. And then suppose when you became fully activated, you learned how to first feel it in the body without paying attention to the images or the stories. And you just felt how it affected the body, the first foundation of mindfulness. And then after you felt that, you saw how it affected the somatic expression of emotions, like did your chest get tight, or did your stomach lock, or did your throat get uh, tight. And then the third is you begin to notice what kind of moods arise and pass, or whether the mind feels expansive or contracted. And then you might begin to just describe the images you see, but nothing else, and just focus on them. Or then you might begin to focus on the thoughts, the word-based thoughts, but ignore the images. And so what you're doing in the foundations of mindfulness is you're breaking down the traumatic into small, digestible experiences that you can one by one reclaim for your left hemisphere. But you're breaking it down so that no one activation is too overwhelming. And this is why mindfulness has been so successful, because it has a very, very low incidence of leading to re-traumatization. People who start mindfulness courses who have been vets or who have been through uh, violence almost invariably complete the courses, something like 90%. People who enroll after traumas to EMDR and CBT and other techniques, their stick it through is about 35%. So the key is to break down the traumatic first into the body, the emotions, the visual components, the mood components, so that you're not ever overwhelming yourself. Hopefully, in conjunction with Buddhist techniques, you'll use creativity to help. I have a, a friend who was traumatized by a series of events and he cannot easily, or he couldn't for many years, tell his story, but he could draw it. He could literally draw his story. So he could begin to express it in art. Some people can express the traumatic in song or in music through an instrument or through sculpting or through some creative expression because the left hemisphere will 
creative works integrates right and left hemisphere. It doesn't overburden and re-trigger as much. So very many people can actively begin to uh, reclaim lost sections of their life, lost chapters through creative endeavors in conjunction with mindfulness techniques. So I thank you for listening. That's a lot to digest. I really hope that somewhere in there, despite how much information I threw at you, there was something that was worth your time, something that you can use in the future to either help yourself or to help another being who's suffering. I thank you for listening. And uh, for those who are 